This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. I'm your host of this program where we catch you up on what happened during the week, something maybe you missed, maybe something you have questions about. My panelists are journalists, so they ask questions too, and they find out stuff, and they know stuff, and we tell you stuff. And I'm so happy to have the Strangers City Hall reporter, Hannah Krieg, with us again today. Hi, Hannah. Hi, how are you? Great, thank you. We've got GeekWire's contributing editor, Mike Lewis, in the studio. Mike, we haven't had anybody in the studio besides me in uh, years, I guess. I am thrilled to break that seal for you folks. <laughs> thank be you. Back in the studio. Thanks for being our seal breaker um, and being on the show. We've got Crosscut Central and Eastern Washington reporter Mai Huang, who is not in the studio with me. Far from it. You're. I think you're in Yakima, right, Mai? Yep. Yep. Quite a, it's a two and a half hour drive and a mountain pass away. So thanks for having me. Yeah, I don't blame you for not making the commute in this morning. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, glad to have you all. And, you know, I can I can see my my crew here because we stream the show live on YouTube and Facebook. So come see us either of those places. Just search KUOW Public Radio. Okay, let's review the week. We're going to begin this show by going from money to ugly to slow in the next, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes. So part one, money. We are used to a booming Seattle, which means a booming tax collection and booming spending. But the pandemic has been expensive, growth has slowed, and Seattle has a budget deficit. This week, I read in Publicola that the city's budget chair wants to, again, take some revenue from the jumpstart payroll tax and put it into the general fund budget for the fourth and fifth years in a row. Hannah Krieg, the payroll tax, the jumpstart tax is supposed to fund affordable housing. Is the city breaking a promise and rating that tax or is this uh, is this kosher? I mean, they're technically allowed to do it. They've done it before to do um to uh, fill in the gaps that COVID left. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, even Mosqueda sent pretty disappointed in the Publicola article about this tax that was meant to do a certain thing and fight for a certain thing and now um, will not go entirely to that thing. Right. And just to remind listeners, this is the tax that big employers pay for all their Seattle workers who make at least $150,000 a year. So why can you give us a thumbnail of why Seattle is in a deficit and what this money is going to be used for besides affordable housing? Um, Maybe that's too big a question. I sort of said generally that there's a lot of reasons. Yes, Um, the the pandemic has been expensive and and I think growth has sort of plateaued. But what uh, you've you've written about this topic of affordable housing and where the money's going to come from, um, what is the calculation that goes into that? And um, how does it affect the mission of getting more affordable housing built in Seattle? Um, I mean, we need money for affordable housing. This was the way we're going to do it. And now they're going to spend it on other things um, while they allow other departments to spend however much money they want. Yeah. And we're going to talk about some of the uh, the challenges to getting uh, affordable housing built that uh, that you've written about, Hannah. Mike, you've, you, you've also talked about uh, a, a reaction you're expecting from the business community to this. Well, yeah, the business community was pretty strongly in opposition to this tax. Um, the tax went through. Anyway, my guess is that, that the, the business community, led by the Seattle Chamber of Commerce, are, are going to definitely push back again and say, well, look, they're not even spending the money on affordable housing. And that's always been the big issue in Washington state. I mean, this desire to sort of changing the tax regime, because we've got a pretty regressive tax system, if not the most regressive tax system in the United States. And so there are these other pockets that we go for from the capital gains tax to this sort of thing. But the thing is that I think when we've run into trouble, certainly in the courts historically, 
it's been when there's not been a nexus, an, a consistent nexus between what the tax is supposed to go for. Everyone remembers car tabs, for example, a few years back, and what the tax is actually going for. And I think that's the problem that the that the, this issue illustrates is that. All right. Well, everyone got behind, or many people in Seattle got behind this idea of taxing higher salaries to make money, to collect money for more affordable housing, and then it's just going into the general fund. I think that there's probably a group of people who are going to be a little unhappy about that. Yeah, and uh, Hannah is the mayor of Seattle going to propose new? Mike mentioned our regressive taxes here. Is the is the city going to levy more progressive taxes? Yeah, in the public cola article, it sounded like uh, they're looking into other options. We already know the other options from a 2018 task force. Doesn't seem like something we need to spend a ton of time looking into because we could set up um, a local estate tax, um, a tax on excess compensation, and a tax on real estate speculation, as Erica wrote in the public cola article. Yeah. And now, uh, I said we're going to move from money to ugly, so part two, ugly. We want our housing in Seattle to be affordable, and we would like it not to be ugly, which is one reason that Seattle has a design review board to check how a building, a new building looks, the quality of its materials and landscaping and open space, and how it fits with its surroundings. But Hannah, why do some people want to eliminate design review when it comes to affordable housing projects? I mean, it just it just slows us down in production. You know, a design review board that can take months, that can take over a year to get a project through the process, which is usually done by a volunteer board who um, use like 104 guidelines and some like neighborhood standards to come up with what they think is, quote unquote, attractive. Um, And, you know, it is there is this like tension of like, well, if we're going to live with these buildings forever, they should be pretty. But um, we have a design review board right now and we still have ugly buildings right now. So Mm. um, it doesn't necessarily guarantee every time we're going to have buildings that appeal to everyone because that's impossible to appeal to everyone because we have our standards are informed by culture and all sorts of things. So um, it seems like a big, a big waste of time to a lot of people. My, you pointed to the concern about people taking shortcuts on design and and is that going to result in affordable housing that, that that isn't what we want? Yeah, I mean, I think my point I was sharing with you is just that, I mean, there's already kind of a stigma. There's a, an attitude about NIMBY with affordable housing. People don't really want affordable housing. You know, people who are non-affordable housing don't want affordable housing near their houses. A better designed you know, house affordable housing makes it more, more palatable, you know, for the general public. And so if you take away these design standards, and people are like, okay, I can kind of cut corners a little bit, it might result in some really ugly housing. And I know Hannah just said, like, we have ugly housing, but I, I think, you know, it's almost like, just because they're still ugly housing, and that means it don't just be more ugly housing, you know, if people can take corners. So that's kind of, of- yeah, my so, sense of it. Yeah, I'm sorry to step on you at the end there. I'm, I'm curious. It's a good point, Maya and Hannah. What do you think of that? I mean, I think like I get what you're saying, obviously, but it's like having this like sometimes two year long process mm-hmm. doesn't guarantee it's going to be nice anyway. Um, and a lot of times, if you've been to one of these design review boards, it's five people, mostly white people, telling the developer what it should look like. I went to a meeting where they were like spending time considerable minutes talking about well should we put a paint strip around the door mm-hmm. and obviously i don't know if that is in your mind cutting corners with design but it's yeah like- yeah definitely not i'm definitely not like <laughs> saying i'm i'm definitely i definitely am on board of not having excessive standards and right. that i mean it sounds like there's issues of excessive standards i think mm-hmm. there's a difference between having standards and being excessive with them. And and so, yeah, if, if they do eliminate the design review board because there's excessive standards, that's understandable. I think the key thing is to have that conversation of, okay, so what are our standards? How mm-hmm. do we ensure, how do we enforce it? And then how, and I guess on the like developer end, how is it manageable for developers so they're not spending an arm and a leg trying to meet these standards? Right. And there is like administrative design review, which some affordable housing projects have been able to go through, especially during the pandemic. And that's a little bit quicker and kind of satisf- satisfies that need you're like getting at. 
Um, it's usually just one person who's a staff person who says, well, these are the guidelines and tries to apply those to the housing project. So that's kind of the happy medium that some people like. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, and that's in, yeah. And I see that in, um, in my community here in Yakima Valley that, you know, it seems like the administrative review seems to be kind of a good happy Mm -hmm. medium that works in a lot of communities. So that makes sense. Okay. Interesting. Any reaction, Mike, a question? Yeah, I actually got a question for the group. Uh, anyone else here see, uh, show me a hero on HBO. No. With that. All right. So that was a show. That's a David Simon show. David Simon's the guy who brought you the wire. This was a, a docudrama, I guess, but based on a real case, Yonkers, New York. I think it's 1980. It's the United States versus Yonkers, New York. And it was all about the requirement in Yonkers to actually place subsidized housing within and integrated within neighborhoods because Yonkers was a, was a pretty racially divided city at that particular point in history. And the mayor who had to see this project through against massive opposition. It's really – it is a lesson in, in U.S. history, but particularly about – Housing, subsidized housing, and affordable housing. It talks a lot about that. And I think that the design review boards historically came about because when we started building uh, housing projects uh, in the big cities, they turned into these areas that enhanced uh, poverty and enhanced racism. They did not actually defeat it in any way, even though they were part of this whole, you know, Johnson's Great Society program, right? So, so the design review was to make these projects actually work a little better within the communities. Now, I agree. There can, there, I think there's been some mission creep here, right? There's been these standards that really shouldn't get down to the striping on a door, but maybe standards that should make these things look good in a neighborhood so everyone's happy with the place they're living in and don't create this sort of like, oh, that's the affordable housing and this is the less affordable housing and these clear demarcation lines. And I think that's what design review at its best is supposed to do. But I'm not sure in Seattle whether or not it's actually been accomplishing that. But to, to my point, I think maybe an examination of what, are, what is the review process is probably, should probably precede canceling the review process. Yeah, I agree with that. That makes – yeah, I mean that's exactly my point. And I definitely have read – I haven't seen that show, but I've definitely read a lot about housing projects in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and just – And they yeah, were miserable. Exactly, right. Yeah, and they're miserable and like – and it just – it really enhance yeah, it enhances poverty. And yeah, and that's why, you know, people have the stigma about affordable housing because right. they, they have seen what the past looks like. Hannah, I've heard that design review and also environmental – review can be used to to slow a project down for reasons that don't really have to do with the, with its paint or its environmental impact is that at play here i mean i i don't know if there's like a nefarious necessarily like motivation maybe but it definitely does and it's not just affordable housing it slows down all housing and all projects by a long time and there is like beliefs that Sometimes these affordable housing things are like held to higher standards because of the NIMBYs who don't want in the neighborhood anyway. Um, And so the city has been trying to get rid of it. It's pretty like universally, uh, like not universally, but there's a ton of people on council who want um, to make exemptions or reforms for affordable housing projects to go through design reviews so we can just get it done quicker. And we have a task force looking into doing it. Um, that task force has kind of got delayed. You can check out. I just did a wrote. I wrote a big story about that at the Stranger. Yes, at thestranger.com. dot com. I asked our KUOW's community feedback club about this, and uh, some comments I got included from Nick in Maple Leaf, who says because design review has to follow a legally enforceable standard, they've come up with a set of rules that may or may not result in a good building or urban environment. You could probably look at every rule in the design res- review manuals and find a building considered an architectural masterpiece that violates that rule. Sarah in San Juan Island says affordable housing isn't affordable to the homeowners or the earth if it has high energy costs or it's shoddily built so it becomes a teardown and ends up in the landfill before its time. Sustainability must be part of the project, even though that may increase upfront costs and without some oversight these goals are unlikely to be achieved. So, by the way, you can become part of our Community Feedback Club, and uh, all you do is just text the word CLUB to the phone number 206-926-9955, and uh, we want to know what you think. Just text CLUB to 206-926-9955. 
55. I'm Bill Radke. This is KUOW's Week in Review. We made our move to part three, moving from uh, money to ugly to slow, as in slowing down housing projects. And now, before we take a break, I want to catch you up on something else that happened uh, this week. The uh, because housing expensive here, right? So what if the CEO of a Seattle company cut his own salary <laughs> from a million dollars to $70,000 a year so that he could pay everyone in his company $70,000 a year so they could afford a place to live? Well, that was the national newsmaking move that you may remember from seven years ago by a guy named Dan Price, the CEO of a Seattle financial services company called Gravity Payments. Mike, Lewis, that act, <laughs> that uh, self-sacrificial act made a national celebrity out of Dan Price, a.k.a. Corporate Jesus. Right. Why did he quit this week? Wow. This story is a long and complicated one, but I'll get it in, in brief. So this was a this is a guy who, who he ended up on the cover of Forbes. He ended up on Oprah. He ended up on all the talk shows, all the big magazines as the new type of progressive CEO when he announced the minimum wage at his company, it employs about 240 people in Ballard. The minimum wage was going to be $70,000 a year, and people celebrated justifiably if that was actually true. I think there's been a little bit of funny math regarding the specifics of that, but I think a lot of people at the company did get raises, and he dropped his own literal compensation lower, although he was still retained ownership of the company. Hmm. But there had been, even at that point, allegations from an ex-wife about uh, physical abuse, and there had been allegations from employees that that he was a pretty volatile guy, that he wasn't this corporate Jesus, uh, if you will. And those things... I didn't make that up. That was a very common yeah. Dan Price moniker. No, that was time, absolutely... Yeah. Yeah, no, that was a social media meme about yes, him. Yes. And also because he's got longish hair and the beard and you know, it kind of yeah. looked like it, right? right. The, the Then... It, so he got that flared up. He actually, behind the scenes, was you know, criticizing local journalists who even reported on the fact that he had some black marks in his, in his history. But then it kind of died down. And then it went very quiet. And he, re, through social media, kind of rehabilitated his image. And again, sort of, he was here introducing Andrew Yang during the presidential election. He was, he's, you know, moved back into the forefront of, you know, corporate, progressive corporate savior uh, idea. But then this happened, a couple of things. One, a great story in, in GeekWire from earlier in the spring about him. Uh, now he's in the, uh, out dating and him in the, uh, with, with a woman who he went out on a date with and then like, kept her essentially trapped in his car and tried to kiss her. When she tried to get out of the car, he apparently choked her. That became a misdemeanor charge. And then most recently with a woman who is a uh, who was a woman he contacted again through social media. They got to be friends. They started up a, a relationship. And her allegation, in fact, is rape. And this is the thing that once the New York Times called him about this, this is earlier in this week, Karen Weiss, who did a phenomenal story on this really highly detailed story. In the New York Times. In the New York Times. She, when she called, that's when he went and informed the, informed the employees and the board uh, that he is resigning and saying that these are baseless allegations to his defense is that this did not happen, didn't happen the way she said it did. And he's, he pled not guilty to that assault and reckless driving. Absolutely. Yeah. And and he is saying that, but he had to resign. So he's not a distraction for the company. And he needs to now step aside so he can focus on refuting these allegations. That's where we are with that. Yeah. Let me turn it to Hannah or my reaction to this you i'm sure you remember dan price very well yeah i i do i see him all the time as as mike said he's on social a lot I, he's constant he's frequently retweeted i see his tweets on my timeline all the time because his tweets just hit hard he has a large platform now he says things people want to hear people want to hear about employees deserving pay people want to hear about getting higher salaries people want to hear People want the idea of a, a compassionate, generous CEO, you know, because we, you know, the narrative has been that CEOs are overpaid. They don't care about the employees. They, you know, employees treat them bad. Um, but, you know, to just be honest, um, this is just my opinion, but I always felt uneasy about that. I always felt uneasy that there's one guy kind of leading this movement. Mm. Um, I think with any sort of movement, um, whether it's like, the $15 an hour minimum wage that kind of happened a few years ago or or just any wor worker movement. I mean, there has to be buy-in and involvement from like a mass amount of people. And I think for me, 
um, Dan Price was kind of like a one man band with this issue. And like, he kind of became the face of the issue. And that's never a good thing because then that person is like on a pedestal mm. and that's just not a good idea. Like you to, to, to make something stick, it has, there has to be broader involvement and it, and it has to be about the idea. It can't be about the person behind the idea. Hannah, I see you nodding. Yeah. I mean, I think um, the comment about the pedestal thing is just like all the, the news I read about this um, or a lot of the local news I read about it was, Oh, the one good CEO did a bad thing and now he's resigning. It's like, uh, it was kind of frustrating to see like his like good deed was always what was led with. And then like, what a shock. Some rich guy did something awful. And it just like, it goes back to that pedestal thing of like, you know, like in a, in a rape culture, this stuff, like everyone is capable of like doing this kind of stuff and we can't put people on pedestals and expect, you know, it's like, you have to be real about that. And um, I don't know, kind of, it's very disappointing. I and I, I, and, I, 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 sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, and I just—I guess I don't want to add to the point about. I feel like as a journalist, you have to be a little skeptical when someone makes their entire public platform this one thing, and and that's what they're known—literally known. That's all they're known for, because you have to question. Okay, are they actually? If they're spending all this time, like, mm-hmm. on this image, right, trying to promote this image, trying to cultivate this image, you have to question whether he's actually cultivating this work culture in reality and that's and that's why the allegations regarding how from the employees were very like caught my attention because that tells me that no or maybe not fully he he wasn't living out this work culture that he was constantly promoting on social media and you know he kept getting all these hit tweets with all these things about you know the importance of doing these things but then you have to be like okay is he actually doing these things mm-hmm. right i mean there's a you know, for I think a lot of people, I mean, we know this about Facebook, right, for example, or Instagram, that there is a gap between what's presented and the person's real life, right? You know, that's a that's a common theme in his particular case, that gap was massive. But I would also say that there were some local reporters uh, who were working on this. I would the folks at mm-hmm. Todd Bishop at GeekWire early on uh, identified the fact that it's not just this is not a pattern of behavior that was like good guy suddenly makes a wrong turn. This was a pattern of behavior. They interviewed what a dozen women, I think, uh, Karen Weiss did in the New York Times, who said similar things about him when they were dating him, like a really super, like they said that he felt predatory when they were around him. And his staff also said, talked about, you never knew which guy you were going to get. He could be very volatile and very mean to staff as well. And so his pattern of behavior, I think, had been established before this big, this was a blockbuster story just uh, yesterday in the New York Times. Uh, this led to his resignation, but I think that's entirely correct to, to bring up the fact that that as a reporter, you have to be incredibly skeptical when someone's when we're getting one tiny view of someone and they are a much more complete person than that. And we focus on that one thing and retweet it and and help them. I mean, because he didn't do this on social media by himself. He mm-hmm. got he was aided and abetted by many people retweeting these sort of things and building him into this idea and then reiterating on the same story about finally we have the CEO we've always wanted. It turns out we didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a long time coming. You're right, right Mike. I mean, I, I read Todd's stories. I mean, I, that's why I was skeptical of him from day one. It's thankful, right. I'm thankful for this local reporting that took a critical look at who this guy is. And it's just unfortunate that it took this long for like the rest of the, the country, I guess, virtually, to realize what a lot of locals knew a long time ago. Absolutely. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. We're running through some of the big stories of the week, and we're going to take a short break here. We've got The Strangers, City Hall reporter Hannah Krieg, and GeekWire's Mike Lewis, and CrossCut's Mai Wong. And after a short break, Mai's going to tell us about an eastern Washington city maybe coming up with a definition of prayer. So uh, don't go away. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying this podcast? Well, you have KUOW members to thank for that. KUOW members make the trusted local journalism and storytelling you hear on this show possible. Become a member today and help support the production of this podcast. It only takes a minute. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. It's KUOW's Week in Review. 
you're hearing it, maybe you're watching it uh, if you're on YouTube or Facebook as we live stream the program. You just search for KUOW Public Radio. I'm Bill Radke, and as I said, I'm with The Strangers, Hannah Krieg, and GeekWire's Mike Lewis, and CrossCut's Mai Wong in Yakima. And Mai, you cover Central and Eastern Washington. The Kennewick City Council voted this week in support of beginning its meetings with a prayer. And now, as you said, they're going to need to define prayer. Will you tell us the story? Yeah, so the city council voted five to two um, to, yeah, start its means of prayer and I guess just start the process of what that would look like, what it would involve. And um, basically, it was a notable development because uh, Councilman John Trumbo actually tried a few years ago to get this approval. Um, and it was a, a different group of council members who did not approve this. So it's noteworthy that he came back, tried again, and was successful. Um, I think for me, what interests me about the story is that there's just been a lot of uh, conversation, um, not just at this local level, but um, there's been a lot of, uh, I think uh, some of you might be familiar. I mean, this is a slightly different case, but there was a Supreme Court case involving Bremerton football coach uh, Joseph Kennedy that was in his favor regarding his ability to say a prayer on the football field. Mm -hmm. So that's a different matter, but I think it's it's related in the sense of what is appropriate as far as prayer? What can you do? What's considered public prayer? What's considered private prayer? Um, you know, how do you define it? How, how are you inclusive? I mean, I think if this is a hot topic, hot conversation topic. So um, for me, reading that story really kind of prompted that those thoughts and for me, uh, you know, this idea of like public prayer and what's allowed. I think at one time, no one would have blinked an eye at public prayer at a, a city council meeting. But now, we're kind of in this age where we have to think a little more critically about it. Do you know who would give the prayer or whether it's going to be a moment of silence or is this just all to be worked out? So, yeah. So actually with the moment of silence, actually the, the members who opposed this proposal wanted a moment of silence. They felt like a moment of silence would kind of be a pretty non-religious way to do what they wanted. So the reason they, the, the argument that supporters are bringing up with this prayer is that prayer is this, positive feel good thing it promotes unity gets everyone in this kind of positive mindset <laughs> i know it sounds kind of wild but that's kind of the, the argument this mindset so they can get stuff done during city council meetings and the the ones that opposed it that the and proposed the moment of silence said hey well, well why do we have to call it prayer can't we just have a moment of silence it's you know everyone can do that it's not required and then they kind of fired back being like, well, that's not the same. It's a watered down version. Like we need prayer, like Pacific prayer. So that was how the top of this discussion went. So yeah. um, they claim, they claim that it's not going to be strictly Judeo Christian. They claim that as they're talking and proposing kind of the parameters that they, they would invite different religious groups to come in and give the prayer. So that's the claim. Again, it's kind of early, so it's hard to say what it's going to look like in reality. Okay. Uh, any any reaction to that, Hannah or Mike? Reaction or questions? I got a question. Uh, so, so we don't know how they're going to – you said, I think, that we don't know how this is going to be implemented, correct? Yeah, I mean, they, they have, I mean, I think the general idea is that at the start of the meeting, someone will give an invocation. I mean, that's the general, like, basic, but in terms of who or what the contents of the prayer, I think that's still to be determined. And has the city attorney weighed in on this, or is the city attorney not weighed in on this? Um, No, I think that's part of the, like, formal policy, right. like, process. Yeah. So. We'll be hearing more. Yeah, I imagine we will. Congress opens with prayers. Seattle mm -hmm. City Council does not. There's cities around the country that do. Yeah, yeah I mean, Yakima, the city, the city of Yakima, they do an invocation. So, I mean, this isn't unusual by any means. Um, it's just, I just think it, it's just in the limelight because there has been a lot of conversation regarding, you know, the role of prayer and its appropriateness in, 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 in civic life at at this point in time. Yeah, thanks for writing about it. I noticed some people there called it, as you said, this would be a moment of unity. This is prayer would bring us all together. And some people said the exact opposite, that this would be a moment of division. 
Yeah. Um, uh, moving on on the weekend review here this week, the mayor of Port Townsend proclaimed that that city values its transgender residents and visitors and urges all residents and visitors to be respectful, welcoming and kind to everyone, regardless of gender gender identity. End of quote. Hannah Krieg, what happened that prompted that proclamation? Yeah, so in um, the city of Port Townsend, uh, there was a situation that happened at the local YMCA. Um, There was a woman, I think she's like 80 or something, and she thought this 18-year-old employee didn't belong in the women's locker room. Um, The employee is a trans woman, and the 80-year-old woman um, told various news outlets that she asked about the young woman's genitals, and then when that employee said, it's none of your business... Um, she asked the employee to leave. Um, And then this interaction, um, the older woman violated the YMCA's policy. So they kicked her out and banned her from the pool. And then she told the media and um, it put a big spotlight on Port Townsend, probably a bigger spotlight than they're used to. Um, And uh, the mayor and the city council decided we're going to take a stand um, with the young employee and other trans people and that's not nothing can, like when you think about all the um, really vicious responses that this story has gotten um, for the city to stand up for the employee like that. I had not heard about this until a transgender acquaintance of mine in that area f- sent me the information about it. But uh, you pointed out, Hannah, that this was a big deal, mostly in conservative media, that this went all around the country. Yeah, definitely a big deal in conservative media. And definitely like when we report about it, we've written two stories about this situation at The Stranger and the story I wrote got more comments than our endorsement package, which is our like most read thing. So it's just Mm. like, this is a topic people really care about. It's a topic that um, a lot of conservatives really care about and it gets really, really heated really quick. So though the proclamation was symbolic, Um, I think that a lot of trans people, especially the ones that were at the meeting, really appreciated um, the sentiment. Well, that was my final. I want to uh, turn it over to to Mike and Mai. But the proclamation that the city of Port Townsend values its transgender residents and everyone should be respectful and welcoming, that seemed awfully um, mild to me. I wondered, was that a surprising proclamation? Does it have any practical um, effect? Does it affect anything at the YMCA what when, And what effect did the people of Port Townsend think it will have? Will you tell me more about that, the reaction to that proclamation? Me? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, um, it doesn't have, like, any, like, there's not a law that says this woman is bad. You know, it's like, it's, it is a proclamation and it's a, it's a symbolic measure. Um and it doesn't really affect things at the YMCA. This already violated the YMCA's policy. The YMCA was very much on the side of their employee. Um, but I'm sure that like other jurisdictions, the city, uh, the YMCA itself or the state could um, find some ways to protect um, trans people if they want to do something more concrete. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't heard anyone from Port Townsend like suggest anything. There wasn't any like suggestions of this is the concrete policy that would change the culture that um, makes a lot of trans people afraid to use um, the locker room or bathroom that aligns with their gender. Um, We do have like discrimination policies in Washington state. Um, But if there was, I look forward to any conversation from folks about what more could be done. Yeah. And just to state what might or might not be obvious, but there's no link. I've never heard of any. Any any kind of link between inclusive bathroom policies and and, you know, safety in a bathroom. But it's just something that keeps being brought up in conservative media. Any any uh, my or Mike question reaction? Yeah, I guess to jump off to your point regarding like the bathroom option, um, I think an important point that gets lost in all this is that there it's not like the Y had like one bathroom and that was the only bathroom this 80 year old woman could use like they're. From what I read, it sounds like the woman could have used, like, I guess they have some family bathrooms or some gender neutral bathrooms. So if she felt really unsafe and did not want to be in that presence of that person, for whatever reason, she could have just walked away. 
Like mm-hmm. the fact that she called attention to this person says a lot, <laughs> I think. And, um, you know, and I think the reality, like if you go, I've, I've been to my local YMCA, it's pretty easy to like get away from people. Like if you really <laughs> are not comfortable with someone, like if you're in a gym or you're anywhere and you don't feel comfortable with someone, you literally can walk away. Like it's not, it's not like, this one, this teenager was like, oh, like over this woman's face or something. I mean, you know, I mean, the way that the narrative sounds, it makes it sound like this, this young person was like in her face and threatening her or like, in, you know, and that's the narrative that's being told. And I think even though um, the proclamation from, from how I see it, the proclamation was symbolic. I think it says, hey, this person, this young person is still a citizen of Port Townsend. Mm. Like this person still has individual rights. Like you cannot just come up to this person and get in their face and ask them really personal things and like, and, and, you know, kind of harass them a little bit. So. Yeah, I'd add just a couple of things to that. I agree. The, the, I'm just waiting for some city somewhere to put out the exact opposite proclamation because you know that's going to happen Mm -hmm. you know that there's going to be some sort of resentment about this kind of thing but the second thing is that we're dealing with a couple of things here we're dealing with people's uh own internal adjustments about how the world is changing around them because we've we've structured everything as we've all said in a very binary way certainly when it comes to restrooms and showers and whatnot and i think this is not just a ymca thing but i think every business every public every place where there's public restrooms are going to have to start thinking about how are you structuring this and are you do you have a structure that actually works in today's society or do you need a structure that actually is much more uh, you know either inclusive or or allows for variations now that we're that we are that we are adopting and that we are considering and that we're thinking about that didn't exist prior and I think that the part of what we're dealing with here are some actual logistical problems as well as you know social ideas and and standards that uh, that have been changing rapidly and i think in really good ways but we're going to keep running into this conflict until we start maybe building things a little differently you're reminding me of the binary in men's and women's sports and the questions about how much testosterone qualifies right, right. etc cetera, etc cetera. okay um this is KUOW's week in review before we take a break uh, one more story from this week mike we found out that seattle's mystery of the missing texts is not a cold case. The King County Sheriff's Office is investigating whether former Mayor Jenny Durkin, former Police Chief Carmen Best, or others broke the law. Will you remind us what happened and why this is uh, this investigation was not a, not a foregone conclusion? Wow. So uh, before I get into that, just a quick uh, shout out to Lewis Cam. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. He was a great reporter at the Seattle Times. Now he runs, uh, he and he uh, co-partners on the um, on the Axios newsletter, and he's been covering this for Axios as well. What happened was this. During the protests, which were during the pandemic, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests and other protests and the, the Chop Chaz uh, situation in Capitol Hill, um, that whole period involved a lot of really high-pressured police work. Some of the responses were strongly criticized. Other people felt the police should do more. But for some reason, the people in charge of that situation, primarily we're talking about Mayor, former Mayor Jenny Durkin, former uh, police chief Carmen Best, all of their text messages during this period, which are supposed to be preserved as public record, disappeared. The reasons varied. Um, uh, I think uh, Mayor Durkin said she dropped her phone in water or something yeah, like that. Salt water. Salt water, something like that. And then uh, Carmen Best also just had a habit, she said, of deleting old texts. Well, if she decided that they weren't relevant, if they decided they weren't relevant, and certainly there's nothing relevant about police, a whole entire police uh, precinct withdrawing from a neighborhood couldn't be relevant. So, so this thing, but, but no one seemed to want to push it. And I think it's in part is because the, it would have to have been the democratic structure in the state to push it or maybe locally. Well, finally, because I think Lewis has continually been reporting on this, uh, it is now actually getting the attention that it deserves, and now the county uh, is going to start investigating what happened to these text messages and why. Remember, this also involved the Seattle Times actually filing a lawsuit against this against this like lack of response to public records requests, which has been endemic in this area anyway. Personally, I think this is a very interesting story, and I do think – because remember, there's lawsuits regarding the police response to these events. These text messages are germane to those, and so – 
getting them. Are they recoverable at this point? No. Has, does a mayor who's a former U.S. attorney who helped write the consent decree not know public records laws in Washington state? No. Seems a little unusual to me. Any reaction question from Hannah or Mai? Yeah, I, I'm laughing. I actually wrote a note to you guys about this. Is that it feels like every time I show up on this show, we're talking about someone deleting text yeah. every time. <laughs> yeah, Literally. it doesn't go away. And and I, I do want to speak to the the broader issue that Mike kind of touched on is this idea that pu- that we're in 2022 and public officials still think it's okay to right. offstate or delete text. Like that is ridiculous to me. Um. Uh, I think uh, kind of related, not not well related in terms of text that um, there is also another story this week that um, there's a lawsuit against the redistricting commission for a similar issue where they're saying that um, they actually withheld public records to hide offensive texts. So, so this is a chronic issue in public among public officials in the state. So it's state not legislators just the not allowing access to their calendars, et cetera. Yes, you're right. Yeah. So I think it's, and I think the story is interesting to me, like Mike said, because I think it's not going to end. I think it's people are going to push for transparency among public officials from public officials. I did we mention that my thought was, well, why it's, it's strange that, why hasn't it been investigated? Well, the King King County prosecutor said, "Well, no one, nobody referred it to us." Yeah, and, which is, which is, I think, sort of a little bit of a specious uh, excuse. <laughs> I think there wasn't really the desire to do it, and now because it's not going away, there is a desire to do it. So great, uh, that's all they need. And now that they're now, I, it's going to be very interesting to see how this investigation goes and what it uncovers. My guess is what it's not going to uncover is the actual text messages. Yeah. What it is going to uncover, hopefully, is whether or not there was appears to be an intent regarding the deletion of the text messages. But I find it pretty implausible that the people given their jobs did not know what they were doing uh, when these text messages disappeared or when your phone accidentally falls off the ferry uh, into the Puget Sound. Yes. One more factor. Isn't the King County prosecutor leaving his job? Yes. Okay. So after he leaves, will this investigation be mysteriously and quietly dropped into salt water mm. and disappear? <laughs> we don't know. We okay. don't know yet. Okay. Uh, KOW's Week in Review. We need to take a short break so that we can uh, touch on a few more stories of the week and leave you with a reason to smile. So let's do that. Don't go away. KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke, with Crosscuts, Mai Huang, The Strangers, Hannah Krieg, and GeekWire's Mike Lewis. Um, Mai covers central and eastern Washington. Mai, when I think east side of the state in the summer, I think, how are the fires and how are the apples and cherries? And last week we told listeners the fire situation is a lot better than last year. Uh, How about the fruit? So, yeah, I'm actually working on a story for Crosscut that's uh, coming up next week, uh, updating on the cherry crop. So kind of the sad news is, is that uh, cherries have been a little bit hard to come by. So if you're a big cherry fan, you can still find the cherries. There's just was a lot fewer of them this season. Um, basically, we had kind of this weird spring. I don't know if you remembered in April um, in eastern Washington, there was like a snow, there was snow in April. Yeah. Um, and so basically created these very bad pollination conditions. So a lot of the cherries on the trees um, did not pollinate. And so they, the crop was already going to be small. Like typically we get a crop of anywhere like 20 million boxes, um, 20 million, 20 pound boxes of cherries. We were looking at like 13 to 14 million because of this issue and then now the numbers are around we're around 12 almost 13 million so that's like a huge cut in the the volume of cherries and so that's created a lot of havoc in terms of like displays you know um retailers want these big fancy fruit displays in their grocery stores and if there's not as many cherries out there it's it's, it creates a lot of yeah they have to put something there and they can't put cherries there so um so that's been the challenge and so now we're, we're, we're approaching apple season. Um, you know, you should be seeing farmers start to harvest apples um, later this month um, into the into the fall. And they're predicting us, um, not surprisingly, a smaller crop for compared to 2021. So um, they're looking at 108.7 million 
40 pound boxes, which is an 11% decrease. So it's, it's a, it's a sizable decrease, but not as bad as cherries, but yeah, basically just not as much fruit out there to enjoy. Okay. Sorry to hear that. Fortunately, the Rainier cherries were, were, uh, were delicious. Now I feel guilty that yeah. I ate some of them. Yeah. I mean, that's, you. that's the kind of silver lining is like, if you got a hold of the fruit because there was the crop wasn't as big and the, there was not as much fruit on the trees that kind of gave the fruit that was on the trees room to develop flavor. So generally when there's a smaller crop, the, the size of the fruit is actually really nice and the fruit's really good. It's just the trade-off is, is there's not as much of it. So, so okay. yes, Mike, this story has been keeping me up at night. And the reason is because <laughs> I am a huge fan of cherries. And yeah. I was, so I have a specific question for you. Does this mean all varieties of cherries or just mean just specific varieties of cherries? Does it mean we're, we're kind of doomed as far as cherries go? I mean, I don't want, okay. So I want to clarify that. I don't want to make it sound like you need to go, like <laughs> you need to take a run on the grocery store. Like, That's you what probably I'm doing after to, the show. Yeah. <laughs> you probably can go to QFC. Actually, I interviewed one of the buyer, a produce buyer cruises and, and they're actually having some nice displays. We're also seeing, um, I think people sleep on other fruits on that washing grows, like peaches and nectarines. We have actually a very robust peach and nectarine um, har- harvest, and so, <laughs> so what? Yeah, <laughs> so just not the same. Yeah, so what they're doing, uh, what these retailers are doing, is they're actually combining, like they're doing like a fruit, a summer fruit display. So they'll do like cherries and peaches and nectarines. So, mm. so you can go to QFC Mike, and you can you can go to and look for their big summer fruit display yeah. and buy your cherries but All it's right. going to be a fruit cup Warn, yeah, warning exactly. you okay uh, we've just got se- less than seven minutes left in the show um, mike i graduated high school in 1982 i attended the school of hard knocks in federal way and i did my extracurricular work at chuck e cheese pizza time theater at SeaTech mall this week our state announced that high school students who have jobs will earn school credit for that work does that include serving pizza in a jasper t jowls costume will you explain uh well, I don't know if it actually requires that specifically, but what it does, what it is, is it's oh. going to, it is going to allow uh, high school kids who work, who get a part time job in certain instances, I, hopefully in many instances, I don't know the specifics yet, about uh, allow them to get class credit for this. And the reason that this is a good thing, it's it's a reason that this could be a good thing is if universities take this class credit and the schools take this class credit and actually turn it into something that matters. It's not just getting class credit. This is a, this is a potential chance to equalize for the kids who actually have to work after school, which was many, which I had to do. I think you said that you did. I'm sure other people on the panel may have had after school jobs as well. I actually had to have mine. The, it allows you, it does those, when you do those things, you don't actually get to participate in all those uh, curriculum vitae, you know, all the, all the, the processes that build your college application, the extra clubs, the volunteer work, all that kind of stuff. You can't do that if you're a kid, so frequently from a lower income family. And maybe allowing this, and maybe then if universities take this, these work-related, part-time work-related class credits and apply them to an actual admissions standard, then it becomes a really important thing. Mm. Uh, I think short of that, it's not an important thing to get a class credit unless that class credit could actually leverage something additional. Hannah, did you have a teenage job that taught you um, uh, s- skills or, or wisdom that, that helped you in your young life and maybe should have applied toward graduation? Yeah. Um, in high school, I worked at Sonic Drive-In. Um, Which I one? Orders. Huh? Which one was that? Oh, the one in Spokane. Spokane. I'm from Spokane. Oh, okay. the North, gotcha. It was white when it opened, the North location. Okay. Um, I learned a lot about how not to cry when being yelled at. Um, which I'm still working on. Um, but you know, there's a lot of skills like multitasking and a lot of social skills you learn from jobs. And you do miss out on a lot of opportunities. Like, um, Mike said, if you're working and even like, you might do like worse than some homework, you know, it might be good to like be able to offset the time, um, with credit so that you can have a lighter load at school and like have a better balance in your life. Yeah, agreed. Good point. Mai, you were nodding there. Yeah, I, I agree. Because um, I also worked in an after school job. And um, I mean, I did some extracurriculars that kind of came during school. But pretty much my routine was go to school, 
work for four hours um, at my after school job and then go home. So, um, so yeah, I love the idea of, you know, maybe it lightens the, the school workload a little bit if you don't have to take as many electives um, to graduate. At Dairy Queen, I also learned that they wouldn't let they would only let me work in the back and burn my hands. Why the girls got as, as they called them got to be up front putting the swirls on the ice cream and talking to customers, which is what I wanted to do. So I, I learned about institutional sexism uh, early on at at Dairy Queen. Yeah. So so my job. So one of my I've worked in a variety of after school jobs, but one of my jobs was actually um, was actually data entry. I worked for this company that. Um, Co- like did medical coding for insurance companies and my job was to like key in all these medical bills and it's it's a very boring job and and, and it's all these numbers that you have to type in so I can understand you know how like on the on the patient end you might get billed for something you shouldn't have gotten billed for or or you know or your insurance company doesn't charge you or doesn't pay enough um like working that job made me understand why, because yeah, if you're keying like all these medical bills after a while, like if you're not careful, there's a you type of wrong number or wrong letter or yeah. something that yeah. creates issues. We have, we're, we're down to two minutes left in the show and I always like to leave something for you to smile about at the end of the program. So my nominee is the new coffee shops in Russia uh, Starbucks pulled out after the Ukraine invasion, so a restaurateur there reopened the Starbucks stores, but they're called Stars Coffee, and the logo is just slightly altered. Uh, the it, it looks sort of like a sister of the siren, and and she has a the 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 Russian headdress, the Kokoshnik, I found mm-hmm. out with the star, and um, I'm guessing you can't get an Americano there, but otherwise it's sort of a a rough uh, equivalent. Yeah, the the. Interesting thing is, I don't know internationally how successful uh, logo enforcement is going to be Mm. for Starbucks. Starbucks is pretty aggressive in that regard. Yeah. If, you know, anytime Starbucks sees anything that, that the way Disney is is the same way, that pushes up against what they feel like is their trademark, they get pretty active, which they did in Seattle. People may not remember, but this was probably back in 2007. They got in a dust up. Uh, which which they ended up losing with the Rat City Roller Girls because Starbucks claimed that the Rat City Roller Girls logo, which was concentric circles, which are exist on Target as well, mm-hmm. but I guess the Rat City Roller Girls were a little easier of a target. They claimed that that logo was in violation. And the only when newspapers started writing about it did Starbucks back up and say, well, maybe we were misunderstood. <laughs> wow. I don't know why, why I had not heard you that story. You don't want story. to tangle with the Rat City Roller Girls. <laughs> don't, don't, do not. <laughs> Uh, we have to. We we anything. We we anyone got a five second reason to smile before we we have to leave. I have something. Yeah. So this week I marked my one year anniversary at Crosscut. Hey, and, congratulations! Yes, and uh, I spent and um, many of my memories involved being on the show chatting with you guys. Well, so. th- thanks. Way to go! And thanks for uh, for for having your excellent reporting be part of our show. Hannah, are you smiling at anything on the way out here? Um, my kitten learned how to get in the sink and it's cute. <laughs> That's pretty good for me. Does it like my, my cat likes to, well, only likes to lick out of the sink if it's drip, drip, drip. It's a stream. He wants nothing to do with it. Is any of that kind of shenanigans? Yeah, on? exactly. You <laughs> can't turn it on all the way. That makes me smile. Thank you for, for being on the show. A GeekWire contributing editor, Mike Lewis, The Strangers, City Hall reporter, Hannah Krieg, Crosscut, Central and Eastern Washington reporter, Mai Huang. Week in Review, produced by Kevin Kinestet with social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Guy Nelson making it all sound great. Good to see Guy again running the board today. You've been listening to Week in Review on KUOW-FM Seattle, KUOW-Tumwater, and KQOW-Bellingham, and we'll do it again next week. Bye. Thanks, team. Great job.